This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Oh, hello. I didn't see you there. I was just reshelving our fiction section when I came across this copy of A Terribly Strange Bed by Wilkie Collins. Did you know that during the Victorian era there were over 7,000 working novelists in England alone? Oh, if only there were a fun and entertaining way to learn about the lesser-known writers of the Victorian era. Surprise! There is. Of course, it would be a pretty strange setup for me to say, Tough luck, get lost! Instead, I'm saying, Good luck, get lost in this fun podcast, Victorian Scribblers. Hosted by two amazing doctors, Dr. Courtney Floyd and Dr. Eleanor Dumbbell, two specialists in 19th century literature and culture. They will highlight the highs and lows of Victorian writing and more. What more? Want more? Get more. We're going to preview an episode right now. What episode? Well, it's a special one. Victorian Scribblers recently collaborated with Broadview Press to interview the editors of Are They Women, Amy Duck's novel about lesbian communities across turn-of-the-century Central Europe. That's the episode we'll be sharing right now. Thank you to Victorian Scribblers for their support. And without further ado, here's the episode. Hi listeners, thank you for being so patient with us last month. To make up for it, we thought we'd release two episodes this month. So this episode is the first in a series of interviews we'll be conducting with editors of new Broadview editions of works by lesser-known Victorian and 19th century writers. And then next week we'll be back to our regular series on Scribblers of Colour. In this episode we're talking to the editors of Amy Duke's Are They Women? And I wanted to just read out the book's blurb to give you an idea of what it's about. So... Deeply engaged in women's rights debates and discussions of the third sex, Are They Women? is about the lively communities of lesbians across turn-of-the-century Central Europe. It is one of the first lesbian novels written in German, indeed in any language, and one of very few pre-second wave feminist texts to provide a positive and romantic portrait of lesbians. A work of popular literature with cultural significance, Are They Women? is both highly readable and remarkably progressive for its time. This is the first complete English translation of the novel, the historical appendices provide contemporary materials on homosexuality, including fresh translations of lesbian and feminist essays, as well as compelling images from German feminist periodicals of the time. This is Victorian Scribblers an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. Hi listeners, today we're talking about the life and work of novelist, editor, publisher, and journalist Amy Duke. 
And who better to have this conversation with than the editors of the recent Broadview edition of Amy Duke's Are They Women, which we've linked to in our show notes. Um, so our first guest today is Margaret Sunzer Breen, a professor of English and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Connecticut. Her intellectual interests range from John Bunyan to James Baldwin, from translation to Holocaust literature, and from feminist and queer theory to LGBTQ plus literature, and she has published in all these areas. She's currently editing The Pilgrim's Progress for the Norton Library series, which is super exciting. And our second guest is Nisha Komatam, who works at the intersection of South Asian literatures and gender and sexuality studies with a focus on South India, uh, Malayalam literature, I hope I pronounced that correctly, and Kerala studies. She's currently finishing a monograph titled The Public Secret, which examines trauma and queerness in South India. She's also interested in literatures of migration, interasia comparisons, and in the transnational entanglements of pioneering queer German writers in Fantasiaclub Europe. In 2017, Nisha Komatam was awarded a multi-year research grant from the German Ministry of Education and Research for her project, Transnational Networks of Queerness in South Asia. So welcome both of you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, our first question is kind of a general one. Um, so our podcast is about the lives and work of what we call lesser known Victorian writers, um, 19th century more broadly. So can you tell us a little bit about who Amy Duke was and how you got interested in her work? Sure. Um, I'll start and then Nisha, I know we'll have things to say, but um, this started in, in one of those serendipitous ways that uh, we have as scholars and readers, lovers of literature. Um, I, I was reading a um, f- uh, discussion of um, fin de siècle sexology, and I saw this one sentence mention of this novel by Aimé Duc that had a a lesbian novel that had a happy ending. And as someone who teaches LGBTQ plus lit, I uh, was really struck by this and and thought, oh my gosh, because the standard narrative, critical narrative, of course, is that there are, that basically until uh, the second wave, uh, feminist second wave and um, about 1965 forward, there are only a handful of texts that have a positive uh, ending uh, in lesbian literature. And I thought, you know, why why don't I know about this? Aside from my horrendous ignorance in general, (laughs) why don't I know about this? Why isn't this talked about? Why is there only one sentence? And uh, since um, it was around that time that Nisha and I met at a queer translation conference, so I knew that she was committed to lesbian literature and issues of translation, and I asked her, would she be interested in working on this novel, both um, that we would translate it into English and uh, also uh, get a new German edition uh, published and she was game and that's how it began from my perspective. But Nisha, I know you have things to say. Sure, sure. I was um, really struck by the degree to which this particular novel had been forgotten even within Germany. 
right? Let alone the rest of the world that may have not known about it to begin with, right? But I had um, significant familiarity with 20th century German lesbian literature, particularly post-war. So this actually had not been um, even documented as far as its existence in many of the lesbian literary histories in German that were coming out in along the second wave of German feminism, for instance, right? The 1970s and early 80s, when a lot of recovery work was done, this book actually had been reissued this one time in 1976 by a decidedly lesbian feminist kind of self-publishing um, enterprise there. But even that actually had already been gone completely out of print and untraceable almost, by apparently the 90s or 2000s. So um, rediscovering it actually in the last decade was uh, involved a bit of hunting down, basically, right? Yeah, thank you. I think that is a question that we ask about a lot of the people that we cover. Is they were so... A lot of them seem to be really revolutionary and then they just get forgotten. And you think, how did this get just completely erased? Well, especially if they're women, right? Especially if they're mm. women or if they're non-normative in any kind of particular way. Sometimes if they're people of color as well, right? So yeah. the marginalities being erased from historical writing and historical documentation actually is a, a central topic, I think, and one that's getting more attention now, thankfully, right? More than ever before, I feel. Also within this country, right? I mean, think about how much we've been learning about um, I don't know, just in recent years about the African-American women working at NASA, contributing to things from, you know, computer science to rocket launches, right? Something that I always wonder, why did no one teach me that in school? Why wasn't it known? Yeah, absolutely. So erasures are, are serve structural purposes, right? Mm -hmm. And they're systemic, they're ongoing. And, and there's a sociology involved here as well. If, if uh, one writer is known and has uh, uh, a certain kind of authority, then that then that writer gets taken up and uh, passed on to future generations generations of of scholars. And so the silences, the erasures, get passed on as well. But they are there. Um, what is it that uh, uh, Alice Walker said in, in in search of our mother's gardens that the, that this heritage, uh, in the case of that essay, the heritage of Black women's creativity is passed on like a sealed letter. And in the case of Aimé Duc or Mina Adelduc, uh, as Aimé Duc is, the, is her pseudonym or her uh, pen name, uh, but in her case, uh, you know, here is the sealed letter that is passed on and the inscription on the letter on the envelope to extend that metaphor is that one sentence in a discussion of <laughs> of um, sexology, fantasy actless sexology. So it's noted, but the letter is never open. The envelope is never opened or or rarely or or put aside. And then, as Nisha said, you know, the the uh, 76 uh a new edition of the the novel, which is a lesbian feminist initiative. Um, it's a wonderful initiative and it had its counterparts here in the States. I think most notably the, the important work of Nyad Press, but it's at the margins. And mm -hmm. so uh, if those margins uh, aren't nourished within publishing or within academia, but then, um, then there are problems, as my greyhound is lamenting. But then there are 
Yeah, your poor puppy is really upset about the erasure of lesbian histories in German literary history, I think. I can tell. She has been, hasn't she, Nisha? Every time that we speak, she has something to say about it. Exactly. And yet she has been extremely supportive all along the way. So I appreciate that. So, yeah. But Amy Duke was such a remarkable person, right, from what we've been able to, to gather. It has, been incredibly, it has been incredibly difficult to uh, even gather the most basic biographical data, and it involved mm. a lot of archival and genealogical work, actually, particularly on Margaret's, uh, from Margaret's side. And I think that this is a person that we would all tremendously in, have enjoyed meeting. This is someone who, as far as we can tell, actually came from a relatively middle ground, middle class background. Mm -hmm. And um, as far as we know, has never enjoyed any university education, any kind of formal university studies, which would have been difficult at the time anyway, right? At the time that she was born at the, in the 19th century. But she actually went on to have a very prolific journalistic and and authorial career basically which is not that common for a woman of her background and her educational level at the time right she has written on marxist topics on feminist topics on workers rights on sports journalism and the most interesting part for me i think is how well traveled she was which was also a tremendous privilege at the time right how she left not only europe not only germany but even europe to venture out into all of these, you know, at the time, really unknown, exoticized, orientalist kind of fantasy um, projected locales, including the Middle East and India. She ended up in India, which, of course, you know, made um, my heart beat faster as a South Asianist. And it's a complete mystery why she stayed for that long in India. We kind of lose a little bit of her trace after the publication of a very fascinating anthology called Indian novellas, which is unfortunately only available in German, but it is available um, in uh, through vintage bookstores, booksellers and things like that, and in select university libraries as well. But it's not an easy kind of, you know, go to a bookstore and pick it off a shelf kind of uh, volume. And after that 1914 volume, which is full of really interesting, um, not always very conventional or boringly heteronormative novellas, that indicate she has great familiarity with the country, the British Raj, British occupied India as it was back then. After that, we don't have any other publications. Yeah. So or we have one minor one, a minor one that um, really doesn't fit with, with the rest of her sort of journalistic and literary profile. It's, a, it's an innocuous piece from uh, what is it, 1920, on how to make an Indian cough syrup or a right. cough Indian recipes. But, you know, this is, it's a tiny, tiny piece and very different from all her other pieces on women's education, right. et cetera. Right, right. And my guess is she didn't invent that recipe for Indian cough syrup either, right? So it's not. No, 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 no. I, but it, it's almost a re-gendering of herself, a rebranding of herself. Right, right. But it's not a, you know, cool queer novel and it's mm. not a manifesto for women's rights or women's education. And it's not even a really, you know, detailed, in-depth description of um, the life of, uh, you know, colonial and missionary and other foreign um, residents of India in the British Raj. So none of that, actually. Yeah. It's a bit of a mystery what, what happened to her afterwards. We know she returned to India, but after that, it's not quite clear. She returned yeah. from India to Europe but we don't yeah. know exactly what happened to her afterwards. Yeah. 
we we have her coming back. Um, so she's she's in India by around what is it, 1904, nine, around probably, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, the piece or the publication that uh, Nisha mentioned of uh, the Indian novellas comes out in 1914, and she's very prolific that year as well with um, a number of essays uh, in a photography journal. She'd been writing for uh, for them for eight nine years as well, um, but of course then the war starts and she is in British controlled India and. Uh, so there's nothing between, uh, certainly between 14 and 18. And the only other piece that we could find was from 1920. 1926, she goes back to Germany. Um, 1930, she divorces her second husband. Uh, she divorced her first husband as well. Um, and then, uh, and then the, the trail runs cold. But uh, she is absolutely a new woman writer. Um, uh, she attended um, various feminist uh, gatherings, um, international conventions, uh, the big peace convention in Paris in, what is it? Um, is it? Is it 1900, Nisha? I think it's either 1900 or was it the year before? Or maybe 1899, um, and this is—I mean, it's a—it's that peace congress was um, important because it brought together a range of people, including people who um, were talking about women living in uh, British colonies, French colonies, um, talking about uh, uh, the problems with colonial rule. Uh, and we, we've thought that since she attended that conference in Paris, um, that perhaps since many of these topics were discussed, along with other um, topics on which she herself had written, feminist topics about um, European women's right to education and so on, that perhaps that spark of going to India was lit or <laughs> perhaps fanned um, at that particular congress. But she's absolutely a new woman writer with, um, she's primarily a journalist who then had wrote uh, maybe four novels and wrote the novellas. But she has that journalist eye or journalist sense of what is a current topic. What, what do people want to know about? So, um, for example, in 1894, she becomes, she lived primarily uh, as an adult lived primarily in Berlin uh, before she and her second husband go off uh, first to Egypt and then on to India. Um, but she becomes the chair, the head of a newly formed women's cycling association. And within a month of becoming the chair, she founds the first <laughs> women's cycling um, magazine that comes out then bi-monthly uh, until January of 1900. And it's wonderful because this uh, she had edited or guest edited a number of other uh, journals up to that point or magazines. But this one brings together her interest in dress reform, in sport, physical culture, and in photography, women's rights. So, so the idea... Um, and in women. 
And in women, that's right, there are these beautiful pictures. Nisha will laugh at me, laughs at me. There are these beautiful pictures of women on bikes. Uh, you know, so for us, it is, these are the early dykes on bikes pictures. They, and they're, exactly. some of them are just stunning. And there's that direct gaze that we associate with the lesbian gaze um, in some of these picture, photos. Um, so it's, it's very moving. And certainly for that venture, the, the cycling magazine, but also if we, when we talk about our life and as Nisha has talked about her life, um, Adolf Dirk was so inspired by and lived according to the, um, metaphor or the, excuse me, the, the theme of mobility, right? Mobility is for her, um, the the, the lens through which women's rights um, becomes possible, becomes visible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. right, right. And now that you say mobility, actually, there are several layers in which this really comes out in her life's work, right? And mm-hmm. what we actually read as her, as her political convictions at the time, right? She writes about um, women's wardrobes, women's dress codes, women's undergarments, actually. So it's about physical mobility, Women on bikes, right? That's about spatial and geographical mobility. Women's education, upward social mobility. So that actually makes her, in many regards, we think, um, way ahead of her time. And that was actually one of the most striking things about this novel in particular mm-hmm. as well, right? The novel called Are They Women? Which is arguably, a, you know, slightly funky title, right? Are They Women? Mm-hmm. So the novel itself tries to answer that question by saying queer women are a um, category of their own, right? And this resonates very much with discourses around gender and sexuality and sexual identities, actually, that we are still having to this very day, right? And that is another very remarkable thing, considering the novel is from 1901, and this is uh, in the... um, This is decades ahead of the better-known kind of 1920s, here also known as Roaring Twenties, Weimar Republic, um, discovery of the lesbian, right? Which was the only decade in, in 20th century um, Germany prior to the 70s where lesbian life was even visible in many cities like Berlin, Munich, Hamburg, Cologne, and so on. So this is actually unfortunately then followed by the Nazi era, and we all know mm-hmm. how that went. Uh, that was a tragic turn actually in, in history, and we don't know what uh, happened to Duke in that dark chapter of German history, unfortunately. So, you know, hopefully she went underground and survived this, but um, it's a little bit of a mystery at this point. So we are curious to find out more about that. But when you meet the characters in this novel, right? Mm -hmm. When you meet this group of women surrounding Mina, Minochka, Fernandov, so the name similarity to the author, I don't think is coincidence in any way. They represent an interesting spectrum of, you know, various non-normative gender and sexual identities without using the term lesbian or obviously queer at all, right? So not even the German equivalents for for lesbian in any time. Um, They are arguing that they constitute a third sex category. And that's why the subtitle of this novel is a novel concerning the third sex. 
Now, we hear that very differently today, mm -hmm. right? By third sex, we think about trans identities. We think about intersex, possibly also represented in various cultures around the globe in all kind, under all kinds of different names and, and definitions, right? So in South Asia alone, we have a wealth of, you know, categories and identities that you could subsume under third sex. But we're not sure that Duke was aware of that at the time, necessarily, yeah. right? writing the novel yeah. at the turn of the century. And certainly third sex was the one of the terms, the technical terms or sexological terms uh, of the time. And it was uh, in the 1890s used first to talk about um, feminists, right? It, it wasn't uh, linked mm -hmm. to sexuality, uh, to lesbianism. But as we move through the 1890s within sexological contexts, it becomes increasingly marked, uh, coded in, when it's used for women, it's coded as lesbian. And then it's a term that becomes, in in the way that systemic erasures happen, it, it be, it's a term, third sex, that becomes linked then primarily to gay men through the, the groundbreaking, important work of sexologists and and. Uh, gay rights, ag queer rights advocate, uh, Magnus Hirschfeld. So, um, but that term then gets used, he uses it actually uh, in his publication called The Third Sex only to talk about gay men. But um, in the 1890s, and she, she, she certainly knew of this, um, it's a term first to talk about women who want uh, uh, access to higher education, right? Um, and, and then it's linked to lesbianism, mm -hmm. um, which, is, so, which is really sorry, which is really interesting because the access, the demand for access to education, mm -hmm. if you denote those women then as members of the third sex, it defeminizes them, yeah. right? It puts them outside of that normative binary of you know ideal male, ideal female, and these are very rigid categories, mm -hmm. right? So the the, the, confl the conflation of um, educational aspirations and lack of femininity or loss of female virtue, so to speak, is a recurring theme, actually. And we also encounter that as put into the mouth of several antagonists mm -hmm. in this novel, right? Men who argue that women shouldn't study medicine and women shouldn't even be at university because mm -hmm. they would distract the poor male student body, um, so to speak, and uh, things like that. She is very much in touch with the discourses of that time, including sexological discourses and that's not really um a very common feature of uh, other lesbian or women oriented female same-sex oriented literary texts of the time right so there are other there's a handful of other um, novels or you know fragmentary texts to some extent as well in german and many of them actually are putting an emphasis on depictions of erotic, orgiastic kind mm -hmm. of sexuality. So it's clearly written with a wider audience in mind than women who may feel that they don't belong within that societal order of heteronormativity. My guess is some of these were clearly intended for male mm -hmm. audiences as well, right? As was a common topic throughout the 20th century for lesbian literatures around the world as well, right? She is absolutely a, a new woman novelist, uh, and the novel is short. Yes. It's about 20,000 words. So in that, so different from um, Victorian novels, mm -hmm. when we think of uh, mm -hmm. a novelist like Mona Caird, 
uh, we're talking, you know, nearly 500 pages. And uh, there's significant overlap in some of the issues with which they're concerned, right? The problems with marriage uh, the, for women, the, the, lack, the lack of mobility uh, in various uh, ways for women. Um, this is a fun read, Are They Women? A novel concerning the third sex. It, and it's a short read and it's, it's lively. Uh, there mm -hmm. are so many exclamation marks in here. There's a lot of drama <laughs> um, and it's packed in, you know, and that's maybe the virtues of her um, practice, uh, her, her experience as a journalist. Um, so it's, it's in so many ways a very accessible and lively uh, novel. Yeah, that's true, actually. It's an easy read. I have a bunch of non-academic friends who enjoyed reading the novel because it's basically, you know, it is. funny dyke drama from 1901. <laughs> and people could relate to that, right? I mean... It's like a fan de cercle outward. Exactly. <laughs> With a lot less nudity, I should say. Yes. <laughs> um, I think you've anticipated a lot of our questions in that. Definitely. Um, I know we both kind of had a question about um, Duke's own circumstances and like kind of the indication that she may have married for love. And is there, is there a lack of discussion or lack of space for bisexuality in the novel? I know maybe it's not. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, I trailed off there. But... Um, yeah. So, you know, that within sexological discussions, bisexuality is absolutely there as a possibility. Mm -hmm. But in this novel, it's not. It's either you are interested in women or in the words of one of our Viennese characters in the book, you're, you're a phony. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that, that really struck me in the, especially in the initial, mm -hmm. in their meeting where they're talking about people he'd married yes and that kind of being like a traitor mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. and that should ring familiar right we still have these discussions in queer mm -hmm. yeah definitely they didn't but i would always argue that they couldn't afford to at the time mm -hmm. in the historical circumstances that's right? a good point. So i mean from today's perspective what 120 mm -hmm. years later um, which is unfathomable to some extent, right? Because we are still discussing and confronting some of the problems that these women were facing in North America in 2021, right? As opposed yes. to Germany in 1901, which was pre-democracy, we have to remind ourselves, right? This mm -hmm. is the German Kaiserreich. They couldn't even vote and are discussing the rights of, you know, non-normative um, sexual minorities, basically, right? So would how would... Um, even if they had intellectually or politically arrived at a kind of, you know, bi-inclusive, trans-inclusive, all other colors of the rainbow inclusive agenda at the time, how would it have helped them to um, argue for the, the basic human rights as minorities if those very categories of minorities were already being destabilized? Oh, absolutely. And the kind of the way it struck me was more how are we still having to have this discussion where it was necessary perhaps to make it, to simplify it at the time? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Yeah, but we've got so much further and we're still That's a lot of the time in those same positions. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I mean, we have been very hesitant to, you know, um, 
follow the temptation to apply labels like lesbian, queer, mm -hmm. trans, bi, um, onto different characters in her life or in her novels, either one, right? But at the same time, some of them actually just lent themselves more easily. So we discussed about the use of the term lesbian quite a bit when we started the project, Margaret, right? So, and um, to what extent actually the term lesbian was necessitated to indicate same-sex mm -hmm. female, same-sex sexualities without making it sound like a kind of slightly reactionary second wave turf discourse, mm -hmm. right? So to speak, that people have been, you know, pointing out. So it was a very conscious and um, mm. intentional choice, actually, to situate this as a work of lesbian literary history. And we had a lot of conversations about actually to what extent that maps onto the characters and onto certain points, possibly in, in Duke's biography, right? Though we know a lot yeah. more about her heterosexual facade and the two marriages to men than we know about any private kind of inspirations for this book. I think to be really cheesy in way of a segue, the other thing that seems to have intrigued both Courtney and I is the bicycles. Yes. <laughs> oh, the bicycles. Yes. What do you want to know about the bicycles? Courtney, your, your note on this was just the word bicycles. I wonder what your... Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I'm just interested in, um, as someone who's much more familiar with sort of new women's literature in England, mm -hmm. um, the motif of the bicycle comes up quite a bit as this sort of shorthand for mobility, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering um, if you have any more to say about why bicycles in general or about her time editing the bicycle periodical or... Um, specifically the connect the 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 bike the biking sequence in the novel as this sort of um almost like a, a mindfulness practice that or like a self-care practice that she employs yeah uh there are two uh cycling sequences right one is when she is visiting her friend who is uh dying i think mm -hmm. consumption right. And so she uh, takes time out to, to go cycling. Um, let's see, we also know that, that later on she joins a cycling, uh, a, a women's cycling group. And, and uh, we hear then explicitly that this, is, that this is a group of third sex women like herself. Um, so why, and then later she uh, cycles in Munich or outside of Munich in the countryside with her friend Boris, and they're taking a break from from studies. It's, it's holiday. It's, I, I think it's August fifteenth, so it's uh, the feast of the Assumption, and Catholic Bavaria has everything closed down, so they go off into the woods, uh, into the forest, and have a lovely time. But um, let me explore that that second uh, point where she joins. Uh, uh, a women's third sex, and I and I realize I'm mixing terms a bit, right? Third sex and women, they overlap or they crumble <laughs> they, into each other or disrupt each other. But um, uh, one of the things that struck us, in particular, as, as we were thinking about the Weimar period, the Roaring Twenties, versus mm -hmm. this um, fin de siècle time, is that there were possibilities for women to meet each other. There were in possibilities, bisexual possibilities as well. Um, but the, <laughs> the ways that women met were um, often through uh, sports organizations. Uh, bowling is mentioned in here as well. And uh, 
certainly in, in, in our research, uh, we came across references to lesbian bowling leagues from the 19, mm -hmm. 19, er, early 20th century. Um, but, but cycling was then an opportunity for women to meet like-minded women. And I'm just thinking as someone who, you know, was a teenager in the seventies or, um, you know, certainly later, I'm, I'm thinking of the ways in which we would signal each other, the codes we would use um, to signal each other uh, about our, our lesbianism. And I think that joining a cycling organization uh, increased your chances of meeting like-minded women. Mm -hmm. So you've seen our book and you've seen the cover, right? The great the photograph from from that wonderful photograph, which is photographed by a lesbian. And she had her friends pose as uh, German uh, university students. Uh, and uh, obviously university yes. would have been another space, but I think it is, uh, cycling becomes overdetermined as a metaphor, not only for feminist possibility, but for lesbian connection. And obviously that's continued, right? I mean, in our on bikes um, mm. kind of way. Right, right. Every time in the novel where there's a scene where Minochka, either alone or with another one of her friends, gets onto a bike and just, you know, cycles out of the city, the reader shares that sense of liberation in those scenes. They're actually described quite beautifully, right? We feel the sense of, ah, a whiff of fresh, fresh mm -hmm. air is actually coming our way, Right. And that's a little bit how I felt when reading the novel for the first time as well. It felt like a whiff of fresh air because of its lack of pathologization for the most part, actually, um, of these of these queer characters, right? So, I mean, there are so many strategies mm -hmm. of pathologization in place, actually, mm -hmm. over the course of, you know, a hundred and plus years of what we have here as modern lesbian literature. And, you know, be it that they're associated with criminality or with immorality or they're all suddenly stricken down by terrible illnesses. Um, these novels can end in suicide. Mm -hmm. One of them or two of them get killed. So there's a lot of kind of strategies of that. And this book is so remarkably free of those that um, that alone actually merits a lot of attention, I feel. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think I was so struck by the ending and the way it it incorporates this sort of combined proposal and marriage moment right that <laughs> that I was just amazed by this I wish I had encountered it earlier in my uh career it just you know it it changes the sense of what's possible in literature at this time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah oh it's never too late for Amy Duke so please go yeah. ahead <laughs> no <laughs> I think that's one of the things as, as we were trying to uh, build out, understand the literary and cultural political context, feminist context into which she was writing. We were so struck by what, what a vibrant and rich <laughs> um, community into which she was writing. Um, in, in part, I mean, Berlin was the was the happening place. You you had the scientific humanitarian committee, right? That that Magnus Hirschfeld helped uh, co-found. Um, then you had that committee's uh, journal, important uh, yearbook uh, publications, right? Which included listings of 
queer literary publications from across you know, uh, across any number of different languages, primarily, it, I think, Western, so European and, and the and the United States, but um, still, and and then uh, the organization also had its um, uh, connection with the Max Spohr Verlag. Max Spohr was a friend of Hirschfeld's, and uh, that um, that publisher. Uh, published um, based what we would call queer texts, um, primarily um, either scientific discussions or sociological ones. So, and, and many of these texts were so, were readily accessible because they were short, you know, and that meant, of course, you could keep the price down. So for people, at least for middle-class people, one always has to preface this, there are obviously class uh, access, uh, class-marked access uh, issues. Um, but for um, middle-class people who are interested in feminist and queer issues at the time, there is a wealth of material and it's exploding all over. And there are women's voices. And again, as, as someone who really understood uh, sexology through men's voices uh, until relatively recently, I was really struck by how many there are and how wonderfully they write. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So important for, I mean, Nisha and I've talked about how wonderful it would be to make many of these texts accessible, more of Duke's writings, but also um, these sexological texts, so that in particular, um, for scholars who work in, let's say, British literature, mm -hmm. that they become accessible, because in many ways they were accessible. So many <laughs> British writers were reading the German, right? Absolutely. I mean, every writer <laughs> knows, <laughs> knows what Kraft Ebbing is saying. Why does he know what he's saying? Well, it's not simply because of translations, et cetera, but it's because there are um, a number of British um, writers and thinkers and, and sexual rights advocates who can read German and vice versa. So there, there is that um, connection at that time. And we, I think as scholars, have to sustain, facilitate, facilitate that, that kind of connections so that our own scholarship can can benefit from these comparative cross-cultural studies. Mm, absolutely. I, I really agree with that. I think the topic of accessibility can just not be overstated if we remind ourselves, you know, once again, how old this is. And, you know, it's not, it's not only pre-internet, it's actually, it's actually pre-egalitarian um, access to universities, right? So um, consider how difficult it was for a lot of people growing up in the well into the 20th century, how difficult it was to access queer literature in their local library in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, right? Trying to get your hands on, let's say, the well of loneliness, right? In your small town library or something might have been problematic enough already. So this is actually, you know, many decades before that. And yet the sexological discourse was multi-sided, multi-directional across European and non-European sites, actually. So, you know, it wasn't all happening only in Europe either. Right. Large chunks of Asia actually contributed to the emergence of this kind of sexological discourse as well. East Asia, South Asia. And uh, people are not always completely aware of, of that, of the mutuality of that discourse. So it wasn't necessarily a West to East one directional flow. 
in that sense, right? I think I should point out. Yeah. I am jumping in while editing here to say that at this point, we had some technical issues, which were entirely my fault. Despite the fact that I'm supposed to be experienced in this, I had to plug in my laptop and in the process of doing so, I unplugged my microphone, which stopped our recording. So we will jump back in at the point that Margaret very kindly reassures me that that's fine. But I should also say that we lost Nisha's recording after this point. I will try and summarize what she said, and hopefully I can do that accurately. It's Saturday. We're all reconfiguring our wires. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> That's fair. Um, yes, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Um, I think we'd like to wrap up by asking um, maybe, aside from Are They Women, what's your favorite novel or other work by Duke? There is no way that I could possibly do full justice to Nisha's answer to this question. What I will do instead is record her recommendation. So she recommends Duke's 1914 collection, Indisha Novellan, or Indian Novellas. And if you are interested in that, you can read more about it in Nisha and Margaret's introduction to Are There Women? And I think for me, while uh, certainly... Uh, this novel, Are They Women, is the one for which she, writing under Aimé Duke, is most well known. And uh, her earlier uh, study of women factory workers, which she published under her first name, uh, Mina Wettstein Adolf, which uh, encodes her first marriage. Um, and that was widely uh, uh, available uh, there were many editions, and in East Germany, it was widely uh, excerpted. So post-World War, because it was talking about women factory workers, chapters would be excerpted and included in anthologies about women workers. But I think for me, I, I would agree with uh, Nisha, but I would also say, wow, I love that that uh, newspaper, that magazine, the, the, the women's cycling magazine. I because you see there the range of uh, <laughs> of her interests, her interest in photography and in sport and dress reform. Mm. Um, as as Nisha mentioned, there's this great moment where she actually there's a picture of uh, an early 20th century or a late 19th century uh, sports bra. I thought, wow, what a cool magazine. I can read about, you know, the kinds of things I want to put on. Um, great uh, discussions of women's fashion, um, discussions of places to travel. Uh, just so much comes together in that magazine that for me, it's really moving. It speaks to her, um, the range of feminist interests but also um, the vibrancy of this community where you have a real sense, wow, there are women who are reading this and they have things to say and there are things they want to know about. It's just, um, it's very exciting in that, that sense. So I would say both Nisha's selection, Indische Novellen, but also um, the Cycling Magazine, which had a life of about just under five years. Yeah. And just to, to add a footnote to what Nisha said, um, uh, and because uh, Eleanor, you had mentioned bisexuality, asexuality gets some important discussion at this time at the fin de siècle. 
and um, in many ways for women who have a queer sensibility, um, asexual, yes. and are existing within marriage and with a within marriage where birth control options are, are very limited, um, asexuality becomes also a way, a, a kind of feminist intervention and queer intervention where women can, in identifying as such or in recognizing their identity as such, um, rest agency for themselves, even when uh, in terms of the law, they don't have that agency. And so there's that discussion that's going on at the Fantasy Echo as well. Yeah, that's also fascinating. Like now I just want to go off and read all of those things. Just keep reading the book. Keep reading the bicycle scenes. Yes, definitely. And there's some wonderful images uh, from the the um, cycling magazine as well that I loved looking at. Did you see Mademoiselle Pauline? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> She's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast today and for sharing all of this wonderful context. It's um, an amazing book. We're going to recommend all of our readers uh, go out and get it as soon as possible. Um, uh, yeah, so thank you both. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And, you know, um, the German edition, our German edition is also available should any listeners be interested in in reading it in the original German. That's also available. That's amazing. We will link to that as well. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you both. This is the kind of conversation I wish we had longer for, but we will let you get on with your Saturdays. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, done by Mr. George J. for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Poddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. The Fable and Folly Network 
where fiction producers flourish.